Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come now with humble hearts to receive your holy word. Speak to us now and give us understanding by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. As we read our sermon text earlier, I'll be rereading various sections as we get to them in the sermon tonight, but we'll just uh, jump right in tonight. Last week, the first half of Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar received a dream from the Lord. But the meaning of the dream was concealed from him. He knew that this dream was unlike any other. It shook him to the core and it tormented him with a sense of impending disaster and it left him unable to sleep. In response, he charged all the wise men of his great empire to tell him not only the interpretation of the dream, but the dream itself. He knew that if he told them the dream, they could tell him any number of interpretations, but he didn't trust them. Only if a man could tell him both the dream and the interpretation could he be certain that that interpretation was reliable. And the wise men objected that this was an impossible demand. They couldn't read his mind. The king grew in rage, and in his fury, he sentenced them all to death. It was only as the guards were rounding up all the wise men for execution that Daniel heard what was going on, and he heard that he and his friends were included in this death sentence. He did not panic, but immediately put a plan into action. First, he scheduled an appointment with the king to tell the dream and the interpretation, trusting in faith that the Lord would reveal the mystery to him. Then he got his three friends together and asked them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. And that night, as they all prayed, the Lord revealed the mystery to Daniel in a vision of the night. And though death was hanging over his head, Daniel did not rush in to see the king, but first he poured out his heart in thanksgiving and praise to the Lord in this wonderful hymn of praise that we read earlier, verses 20 to 23. He praised the Lord. He gave thanks and praise. And tonight we pick up the story with Daniel now coming, approaching King Nebuchadnezzar to tell first the dream itself, followed by its interpretation, just as the king had demanded We'll see a dream that tells of the rise and the fall of four kingdoms of man, followed by the coming of the kingdom of God, which will stand forever. I know the passage closes with King Nebuchadnezzar's response of worship and the promotion of Daniel and his three friends. As we work our way through the passage tonight, we have the advantage of living long after this revelation was originally given. It was enough at the time to make this pagan king bow down and worship the Lord. And yet, how much more so today when we see how perfectly these things have been fulfilled throughout the course of history, most of all in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's begin as Daniel approaches King Nebuchadnezzar, reading verse 24. Therefore Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. 
Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. First off, we see here a contrast between Arioch and Daniel. While Arioch is quick to take credit for having found Daniel, Daniel takes no credit for his ability to interpret the dream. Rather, he humbles himself and exalts the Lord. Daniel is not in and of himself able to make the dream known, nor is any wise man. Only the Lord, only the God in heaven is able to reveal such a mystery. And Daniel is merely his humble servant. And so he continues in verse 29. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries may known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Daniel is continually humbling himself. He has no more wisdom than all the wise men. He gives glory to God alone, who is the source of all true wisdom. Daniel's merely an instrument through whom God has chosen to reveal this mystery to the king. So far, we've tackled the introduction to the dream. Then in verse 31, Daniel begins to describe the dream. Then in verse 36, he gives the interpretation. Before reading these verses, I'd like to give just a, a few comments. In verse 43, and I believe in one other place, the ESV translation speaks of the feet of the statue of being as soft clay, giving you the vision that this is unbaked, moldable clay. But elsewhere, the clay is called brittle in just the previous verse. And from the rest of the context, it's clear that this is not soft, unbaked clay, but baked, fired clay, what we would call ceramic So I would disagree with the ESV translation at this point. Second, I want to note that there's a parallel passage to this dream in chapter 7, which describes four beasts which correspond to the four kingdoms of man. And this is then followed by the coming of the Son of Man, a passage you might be familiar with. Now, we won't have time to read and comment extensively on chapter 7 tonight, but I will make a few references to the parallels where they help us to understand our passage in chapter 2. So then, reading from Daniel 2, verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. 
Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with clay, so they will mix one another with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So we've heard the dream, we've heard the interpretation from Daniel's lips. What does it mean for us? This great statue has four main sections representing four kings and their kingdoms, each composed of a different material. And the materials go from the most valuable to the least, but also generally towards increasing strength, with the exception being the ceramic, which is brittle. At this time, gold was about 13 times as valuable as silver. Gold is valuable, it's dense, but it's also a soft metal. Bronze was copper hardened by tin and thus stronger, but also less valuable than silver. And then iron would be the strongest of all the metals in the statue. Then in the feet, we have the fired clay, which is an everyday item used in household pottery and bricks. It was cheap, it was plentiful, easily broken, and disposable. There's an important principle that will help you to understand both this vision, and it'll come up in others in Daniel as well. And it's that a kingdom is represented by its king. So Daniel says that the golden head represents Nebuchadnezzar himself, but that the other sections represent not the kings, but rather the kingdoms that follow. Later we'll ask, does the stone represent the coming kingdom of God or the king, the Messiah? And the answer is yes, both, because the king represents the kingdom. That's a key to understanding this dream. 
So beginning with the head, Daniel says that Nebuchadnezzar, and I would say, and his kingdom of Babylon is symbolized in the dream by the statue's head of gold. And so we see here a glorious beginning. He also refers to Nebuchadnezzar as a king of kings. This is a title we usually think of as reserved for God alone. And yet the title is used of Nebuchadnezzar not only here, but also in one other place in the scriptures, in Ezekiel 26, 7. Because he literally was a king who ruled over other kings. We can think of King Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim in Jerusalem as just one example of another king who was under Nebuchadnezzar's thumb. And yet as Daniel goes on to say in verse 37, it is the God of heaven who has given Nebuchadnezzar the kingdom and the power, the might and the glory, and has allowed him to rule over the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven. And so if Nebuchadnezzar is the king of kings, we must conclude that God is the king of the king of kings. You also see that this reign, this kingdom, will not last forever. As Daniel said in his prayer back in verse 21, the Lord changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and he removes kings. And the time will come when Babylon will fall. That brings us to the second section of the statue. The chest and arms of silver, which is called an inferior kingdom in verse 39. And from here forward, we should recognize that Daniel himself does not identify the names or the dates of the empires. These details were not revealed at this time. He simply makes clear that one empire will fall and another will rise in its place. However, we can be quite certain of our identification of the kingdoms for two main reasons. First, we know that the fifth kingdom, the kingdom of God, came during the time of the fourth kingdom, which we can identify as the Roman Empire, and we can work backwards from there. Second, we also have the second and third empires identified by name in chapter 8, and we can line them up with parallels in chapter 7, which parallels chapter 2. So although there are some scholars who dispute the identities of the kingdoms, I think we can be quite certain of the traditional view that has been held by virtually all Orthodox Christians dating all the way back to the ancient church. However, we should remember that the primary point of the passage here in chapter 2 is not to figure out the names of the kingdoms. It is rather, this is the main point, that God is sovereign over the rising and the falling of kings and kingdoms, and his kingdom is coming. In fact, it has come, and it will stand forever. So the second kingdom, one inferior to Babylon, will rise. And we can now identify it as the Medo-Persian Empire. You also hear it called the Medes and the Persians, or simply the first Persian Empire, since it was the Persians who conquered the Medes and not vice versa. If you look into secular histories, you'll most likely find it called the Achaemenid Empire. We'll actually be encountering it later in this book as Daniel lives through the fall of Babylon at the hands of the Persians and goes on to serve King Cyrus of Persia at the end of his life. Then the second empire is followed by a third, the belly and thighs of bronze. 
And we can identify this as the Greek Empire. Although there's very little detail given here in chapter 2 beyond the fact that the third kingdom will succeed the second, Daniel receives a much more detailed vision concerning the conflict conflict between the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire in chapter 8. We'll see that when we get there. Historically, we know that most of the territory of the Persian Empire had been conquered by Alexander the Great's armies by 330 BC. And shortly after that, Alexander died, and the Greek Empire was broken into multiple factions. The two most important for our purpose, our purposes being the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid Empires. Daniel chapter 11 prophetically describes about 200 years of the conflict between these two divisions of the Greek Empire. Described there in terms of the kings of the north versus the kings of the south. We'll look at that in detail when we come to chapter 11. The third empire is then followed by a fourth. The legs of iron and the feet of iron mixed with fired clay. Now notice how special attention is given to this fourth kingdom. With far more description given to it than to the second or the third kingdom's. It is described as being particularly strong, strong as iron which destroys all things, and yet also weak and brittle, as the feet are iron mixed with clay which does not hold together. The feet of mixed iron and clay are the weak point in the statue, which the stone will target to bring the whole statue crashing down. I've already said that this fourth kingdom represents Rome. And we know this because Christ came to inaugurate his kingdom during the Roman Empire. This is the consensus view of virtually all Orthodox believers. Now let me give you one further interpretation that builds on top of the consensus view that I believe lines up with the rest of biblical theology. And here I want to give credit to the work of one commentator, Joe M. Sprinkle, who I'm following closely. It's clear that there was a first fulfillment of this prophetic dream during the Roman Empire. That empire has now come to its end. However, since that time, other nations and empires have risen and fallen. Furthermore, when we come to the parallel vision in chapter 7, we'll see that there are elements of that vision that were not fulfilled in Christ's first coming. Just as Christ came the first time to inaugurate his kingdom, so he will come again to usher in its consummation on the last day. It's in his second coming that he will shatter all the kingdoms of men with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, Psalm 2.1. And we'll consider that further in a moment. But the fact that this did not happen at his first coming is part of what confounded his disciples. And it's for that reason I think it's best to see this final kingdom of iron mixed with clay as symbolizing not just Rome, but Rome and beyond. And I think this lines up with the apocalyptic imagery we see in the book of Revelation. It's clear that the imagery of Babylon there symbolizes the Rome that was present when John wrote And yet it also symbolizes all the corrupt and sinful nations that have risen and fallen since the days of Rome. And so I think something similar is going on with this fourth empire. 
And that's why I think it's wise to label it as Rome and beyond. If you don't find this argument convincing, it's okay. You can stick to the traditional view and simply call it Rome. I think it's better to see it as Rome and beyond. We don't yet know which kingdom or kingdoms of man Christ will shatter on that final day when he returns in glory. But we do know, in the end, only one kingdom will be left standing, and that is the kingdom of God. So let's now turn from the kingdoms of man and consider the coming of the kingdom of God, which stands forever. In contrast to a man-made statue of metal and clay shaped by human hands, this kingdom is represented by a stone cut from a mountain by no human hand. As I said earlier, some debate whether the stone represents the kingdom or the king, but I think it's simple. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, it's both the king and the kingdom because the king represents the kingdom. First, let's ask, what is the significance of this stone cut by no human hand? I believe this refers to Jesus' incarnation and virgin birth. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, Matthew 1.23. He was born without human intervention, without the aid of a man. All Mary did was submit to the Lord's will, responding humbly to the angel's message by simply saying, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Luke 1, 38. Second, this stone will break these kingdoms in pieces and blow them away as chaff. Here you need to recognize that when Jesus came preaching, as it says in Mark 1, 15, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The very first thing that would spring into the mind of most people's minds would be these verses from Daniel 2, along with the parallels in Daniel 7. And in this declaration, Jesus was basically saying, the king has arrived. Behold, here I am. And evoking this imagery of a stone destroying a great towering statue, Daniel was also calling to mind the encounter of David slaying the giant Goliath with a sling and a small smooth stone in 1 Samuel 17. Although David targeted Goliath's weak point in his forehead, this stone targets the weak point in the statue's feet. And yet the outcome is the same. The giant is slain with a small stone. And what is seemingly small becomes great. David goes on to become Israel's great king. David's greater son, Jesus, will go on to be the great king of kings, the Lord of lords who reigns forever. And this stone will grow to become a mountain that fills the earth. And Christ refers to this passage during his earthly ministry. After telling the parable of the vineyard, which critiques the rulers of the Jew for the Jews for their faithlessness, he says to them, What then is that which is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Luke 20, 17, and 18. Now here he's quoting from three places in the Old Testament. First from Psalm 118, 22, then Isaiah 8, 15, but he concludes with Daniel 2, 34. I ask you, could he be any more bold? He is saying to these Jewish leaders, I am that stone, the king of the kingdom of God, and I have come to crush the kingdoms of men. As it says in the Messianic Psalm 2, 8 and 9, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. All this is prophesied of the stone, the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And yet, perhaps you're asking the question, I've already said this a bit earlier, has all of this been fulfilled? It's not wrong to ask this question. In fact, the disciples were asking a similar question on the very day of Jesus' ascension. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, Acts 1, 6-8. I'm not exactly sure what the disciples meant when they asked their question because Jesus did not answer it directly. They knew that Jesus had died and risen to accomplish their salvation, but the Jews were still under the subjugation of the Roman Empire, and they most likely wanted to know when Christ the stone would strike down Rome and return Israel to earthly power. Now, it's true that the Roman Empire has now fallen, But it did so slowly, little by little, over a few centuries. And I don't think we could rightly say it fell to the kingdom of God. But Jesus, in answering his disciples, turns their focus away from earthly kingdoms and directs their focus toward the expansion of the kingdom of God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. That's why I believe the fulfillment of this part of the prophecy The striking of the statue and the crushing of the kingdoms of men awaits Christ's second coming. It certainly lines up with the fall of Babylon the Great and the destruction of the beasts and the kings of the earth as depicted in Revelation chapters 18 and 19. But Christ's response to the disciples about the growth of his kingdom through the Great Commission brings us to our third subpoint here. The stone will become a mountain that fills the earth and stands forever. The parallel vision, Daniel 7, the ancient of days entrusts the kingdom to the Son of Man. And so we read verse 14, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Uh, This language of God's kingdom 
described as a mountain, is not unique to Daniel. We also read of it in Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now when we think of God reigning from his temple upon the mount, upon Mount Zion, his holy hill, we know that his present dwelt in the holy of holies above the seraphim with the ark of the covenant serving symbolically as his footstool with the coming of christ all this is radically changed for the word became flesh and dwelt among us john 1:14 jesus was himself the temple incarnate god dwelling in human flesh and that's why he said destroy this temple And in three days, I will raise it up. He was speaking about the temple of his body, John 2, 19 and 21. And so when Christ died, the temple's veil was torn in two. And then after his resurrection, ascension, and the outpouring of his spirit, where is God's temple now? What does the kingdom of God look like today? Do you not know? That you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 3.16 And so the kingdom of God which is growing and spreading and filling the earth as the mountain filling the earth is composed of his people. Of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And everywhere the gospel goes and his word is proclaimed. There it is that Jesus Christ, the king is reigning in the hearts of men. Just as Jesus instructed the Pharisees in Luke 17, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And so I say the kingdom is here tonight. As God reigns in the heart of each one who obeys his word and spirit. And yes, it is more visible when Christians gather as a church, less visible as we are scattered in our homes or in our workplaces throughout the week, less visible for those Christians living secretly in places where there is great persecution. And yet, even there, God's kingdom is present. And of course, it will be most visible on that day when Christ returns and he will crush every other kingdom And earth and heaven will be made new, and the holy city, New Jerusalem, will come down from heaven from God, and we will dwell with God forever. We certainly have more details about these things in the New Testament. But isn't it incredible that we have a basic outline of all of history already here in Daniel chapter 2? 
What a marvelous revelation. What mysteries unveiled which God gave to the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar. I think he was right to be terrified, to lose sleep over this until he could understand it. So Daniel concludes, verse 45b, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain. Its interpretation, sure. What has been revealed is certain will surely come to pass. For God himself, the author of history, the revealer of mysteries, has made it known. Now let's consider King Nebuchadnezzar's response. Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. Nebuchadnezzar had been so deeply disturbed by this dream that he could not sleep. He must have been relieved to discover that this stone that destroys the statue was to come in the distant future. His response of falling face down and paying homage and offering incense are all acts that would normally be offered to pagan deities in worship. For the king to do so before one of his lowly servants must have been shocking to the rest of the court. Of course, no Jew would receive worship, which is reserved for God alone. The fact that Daniel does not object can only be because he is either too flabbergasted to respond or... Perhaps he understood that Nebuchadnezzar actually meant to worship God and not Daniel. And we do see, in fact, that is Nebuchadnezzar's intention, if he's not actually doing so, but his intention as revealed by what he goes on to say in verse 47. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. In this praise, we must recognize these are still the words of a pagan king. Even as he praises the Lord as the God of gods, he is most likely merely recognizing the Lord as the most powerful of many gods, not as the one and only true God. And yet, we'll see as we follow Nebuchadnezzar's story through the next two chapters, the Lord is not done with him yet. In the next chapter, he'll try to overcome the dream by setting up a massive statue of his own and it will be all of gold. But then in chapter 4, the Lord will humble him greatly until he bows the knee to the one true God. Then Nebuchadnezzar goes on to give Daniel the rewards he had promised to the one who could interpret his dream. Verse 48 And the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. By human standards, Daniel had experienced a meteoric rise from an exile torn away from his homeland And now, less than two years later, he finds the king prostrate before his feet and setting him up as ruler over the central province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of the province. Of course, we know that this was not due to Daniel's own skill, but due to the Lord's good providence. 
Daniel even secures a promotion for his three friends. And personally, I don't know that I'd want to be the boss over hundreds of magicians, enchanters, and sorcerers. But Daniel, in his wisdom, will find a way to do this work while remaining faithful to the Lord. In light of all that we've seen tonight, how should we respond to this glorious revelation, the revealer of mysteries? I think the best response is the response of Daniel himself, the hymn of praise in verses 20 through 23. So as we close in prayer now, I'll be praying those words in our closing prayer. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of our fathers, we give thanks and praise. For you have given us wisdom and might and have made known to us what we asked of you. For you have known to us the king's matter. Lord, we thank you tonight for what you have revealed through this passage and how we now see how it has been so perfectly fulfilled. And Lord, we also look forward even as we have seen the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we also look forward to his second coming when he will bring to consummation his kingdom, when we will be ushered into the new heavens and the new earth, and when all the kingdoms of men will come to an end and only one kingdom will be left standing, when we will dwell with you forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And for this we give you praise in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.